Now tonight we continue our study of the book of Revelation, and we are in Revelation chapter 6. And we are going to look at two more seals being revealed to us. To remind us, we've seen in the first four seals a picture of warfare, a picture of death, a picture of famine uh, being described before the, for the people that things are going to get terribly difficult upon the earth. And so uh, the first four seals have revealed those four horsemen and it has not been a pretty picture. Things are going to get terribly difficult as these judgments are going to unfold. The fifth seal, though, seems to take a change of course rather than continuing to describe uh, devastation and ruin and warfare and famine. Uh, the fifth seal is going to take a turn here and, and give us a picture of the saints and then the sixth seal is going to turn back to more images of judgment and devastation. So let's begin uh, with the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their witness they had mourned. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's the picture of the fifth seal. So you have the imagery now changing away from the judgments and the horsemen and all that's about to happen. And we turn our eyes now to this altar in the throne room scene of heaven and we see the souls of those who had their bodies, their physical bodies killed because of the Word of God and because of their testimony. These have been persecuted. They've been killed for the cause of Christ. And so they are crying out now at this moment to God, how long are these things going to continue? How long until you judge the earth and you bring the justice that needs to come about? And I think that's important to see in this seal is that these souls are not crying out for personal revenge. They're not saying, now, God, you got to get them because, boy, they got me and that wasn't right. You notice that the appeal is because of the wickedness that's transpired They are saying, God, You need to be just. There is something that needs to be done. How much longer will this injustice continue? How much longer will this kind of wickedness prevail over the earth? When are You going to act? And that appeal is very similar to what we read the prophets doing. In particular, Habakkuk, I think, is the most mindful of such a similar request where the prophet Habakkuk looks at his own nation and sees the wickedness and seems to cry out, how long is this going to continue? And God says, I'll bring Babylon and and I'll deal with them in that kind of judgment. And then Habakkuk says, well, wait a minute. That doesn't seem right either. How long is that going to happen? Because they're wicked too. And the same picture is being drawn out here as these who have been killed, they've been slain for the cause of Christ. They're saying, well, 
How long is this going to keep going on? Lord, how long until You do something about this? How long until You judge? How long until You bring a justice for the things that have been done? And the answer that God gives is somewhat perplexing, I think. It's somewhat comforting and and somewhat difficult. The first is, is the comforting picture in verse 11 in that they are given white robes. And we observe that this morning, this picture of being given a white robe. We're going to see that again in chapter 7. We're going to see this great multitude wearing white robes. The picture of them having white robes is not as straightforward as, well, they're holy and pure. That really wouldn't fit the picture very well to say, here are the souls under the altar, and so this robe that reflects purity is given to them. It's a little late for that. They've already lived their lives. They've died for the cause of Christ. They're now slain and the souls are there saying, well, how much longer is this going to be? And so while the white robe typifies purity and holiness, the picture is more that of victory. And we have seen that in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. What seems to be the picture of those who overcome? They're given these white robes. They are given crowns. They are given these images of victory. And so what is being visualized for us is these robes are given to these these souls, these saints who have been slain for the cause of Christ. It is an imagery of God is going to do something. God is going to act. There will be justice. You are going to be victorious. And the reason that they are victorious is because of their faithfulness. And that's why the white robe works. It's because of their purity, because of their holiness, because of their faithfulness. That's why they're in the condition they are in. They've been holding fast to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what got them killed. And so here is the picture of because of your faithfulness, because of your holiness and your purity, here are the victory robes. And we read that that's what was given to the Roman generals. Uh, Osborne makes a note in his commentary that that's what the Roman generals wore after victory over the, the enemies as they would come in wearing white robes. And so the symbolism certainly stands a picture of victory. And the reason why is because of their faithfulness and their goodness. I think in a sense this seal is visualizing what has been promised throughout the seven churches of Asia. This promise at the end of each of the letters to the seven churches. Yeah, to those who overcome, here's what I'm going to give to you. And I think here now in chapter 6 with this fifth seal, we are given as readers the follow-through of that promise. Here are those who have been faithful. Here are those who have overcome. They have given their lives. And now look at the end result. They are shown as being victorious. And that's where chapter 7 is going to lead us. And many chapters in the future is going to show us that, look, the faithful ones of God, those who have given their lives for the cause of Christ, look at what they are receiving. They are shown not as outcasts. They are not shown as as failures. They are shown as victorious. And so that's the positive picture of what is stated here in verse 11, that each one is given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. That sounds good until you read the rest of the picture. 
And that's probably where the, the, the sadness really amplifies. It, it, it's tragic enough to read that these are the faithful Christians who have died for the cause of Christ. That these are the Christians who held fast faithfully to the Word of God. They testified on behalf of Jesus Christ. They died for that. And then they are told to rest a little longer, the middle of verse 11, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Now that doesn't sound too good, and especially when you read the rest of what that means, which says there that who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The statement given to them is essentially, God is aware, God sees that you died for the cause of Christ, but He's not going to do something quite yet. Wait a little bit longer, because more are going to die. I don't know how you would take that information if you were there in the first century, if that would be one of those, well, let's go home and that's a good, warm, fuzzy, encouraging thought. That's not really that, is it? And that's what's laid out here is there is some comfort. You are victorious. You're not lost. You are with Christ. You are in the victory. But there's more that's going to have to happen. And that's a good reminder for us in terms of our prayer life and in terms of the suffering and the things that we often deal with in this world is that so often we're calling out for God to act now. You need to do something now. Intervene now. Save the day now. End my suffering now. Get the enemies now. And I think many times the answer that God gives is, well, rest a little longer. There's more that has to happen. God's not going to step in yet. Judgment is not due yet. Judgment is going to come. And that's certainly being visualized here, but not yet. There's more of the people of God that are going to die in this scene. And we're going to see a lot of that as we go through the book of Revelation, the persecution of the people of God. And so here is this predictor being laid out for us right here at the very beginning of all this information about this warfare and disaster and famine is that it's not going to be over yet. Many have already died, but there is going to be many more to come. A certain number also are going to die for the cause of Christ. And we always need to be ready for that. We always need to be ready and always be understanding that you hold on to your faith no matter what. We always stand firm in the faith regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what is put against us. And that's one of the amazing pictures that we're presented here is look at these people who died for the cause of Christ. And look at the warning to the Christians about the future. Can you imagine being that? Not only have you witnessed perhaps your fellow Christians and fellow servants and brothers in Christ die, but the statement that, and you may very well be next. You may very well be next. There's more to come. The full number is not complete yet. More must die in this process. And I think that as before we turn the page to the next to the next seal of the scroll. I think we ought to keep in mind who in the scriptures has been the primary persecutors of the people of God. Because this is going to be a common theme of seeing the people of God and they are going to suffer, they're going to die. We've observed that in our Sunday morning studies in the, in the chapters 2 and 3 of those who would stand against the people of God. 
I want us to think our minds through the book of Acts and think about who has been the afflictor? Who has been the one who has caused all the problems? And I think you'll come to recognize pretty quickly that it is the Jewish nation that has been the people who have stood against the Christians throughout. It starts very early, like with Stephen. And we see even the apostles being in prison like Peter and John. Stephen is killed. The church is scattered in Jerusalem as, as havoc is being wreaked by the Sanhedrin and those who participate in that Jewish leadership. You have Paul being chased, chased by the Jewish people from city to city like we've studied in the book of Acts from Iconium and Lystra being chased all over those cities. Paul at one time being stoned and left for dead by those very Jews in those cities. We read about Jason and his household being completely turned upside down and being drugged out of their homes as they're looking for Paul and his companions and drugged before a tribunal trying to have this persecution continue against those who would claim to be Christians. The book of Acts just reveals over and over again that Rome is not the issue, but it is the Jewish nation that is the issue. And when we go back to chapters 2 and 3, who have we been reading about that are the problems? There is the synagogue of Satan, of those who claim to be Jews but are not. These people who claim to be the people of God, but in fact Christ says they're not the people of God and they're giving you tribulation. So I want you just to see the cohesion of the New Testament that our biggest problem in the first century is not really a Roman presence, but it is the Jewish presence. It is the Jews who are the ones who are instigating the problems. And if you go back even to the Gospel record, why is it that Jesus is even before Pilate, the Roman governor there at that time? Because of the Jews. They're the ones that have brought all that about. So from Jesus on, this problem... Uh, has has been there from the Jewish people. So I think that's what verses 9 through 11 are observing. Is how long is this going to continue? How much longer? And there's going to be more. There's going to be more Christians that must suffer for the cause of Christ. Verses 12 through 17 then give us the picture of the sixth seal. This is probably one of the more popular images, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time tonight. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This one, this sixth image, simply described would be images of devastation now. It's just horrific images described here. We have a picture of this great earthquake. We have the sun 
turning black. We have the full moon turning to blood. We have stars that are falling from the sky. We have the sky itself being rolled up and vanishing like a scroll. We have every mountain and island running and disappearing from its place. This certainly sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? This sounds like the end times. This is a cataclysmic event where is the destruction of the earth. But it's not. And I'll show you why. That these, every single one of these images has been used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And that is a very important clue to us that it's easy to come across language like this and jump to a conclusion that is so often jumped to, well, this must be talking about the final judgment. And not necessarily. Let me show you a number of Old Testament texts. I think I have every one of them on the screen, but you can certainly, if you can turn quickly, you can go with me there. Let's start in Isaiah chapter 13 and notice the same images that are found over there. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. Sounds like the end of the world there, doesn't it? That's pretty fierce. We've got stars falling and the constellations falling and the sun is darkened. But if you back up just a few verses in that, back to verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 13, it's actually a description about Babylon. Not a description about the end of the world, but the judgments that would befall that world power Babylon. And so immediately we recognize and learn even right here from Isaiah that when you read language of sun will be darkened and stars are falling and the moon is blood and all the earth is going to tremble, that doesn't mean that all the earth is going up in smoke and cataclysm. It's very graphic imagery to tell whoever is the object of God's wrath that it's your end. You're not going to see the sun anymore. You're not going to see the moon anymore. Instead, you're just going to see blood. You're not going to see the stars anymore. They're going to fall from the sky. It's the end of your leaders. It's the end of your might. It's the end of your rule. And so as a description to whoever the prophet is speaking about that this is your doom. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 13, is saying to Babylon, your time is coming. It's going to be your end. And that nation will fall. And that is exactly what happened historically after Isaiah prophesied these things. Let's look at another one. Let's look at Ezekiel 32 in verse 6. This is another instance. Ezekiel 32, verse 6. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you when I blot you out. I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. 
Same type of imagery. Into the stars, uh, into the sun, covering the sun. The moon's not giving its light. Sounds like the end. We back up just a few verses. Who is he prophesying against? Egypt. This is a prophecy against Egypt. Same thing. A national judgment. Egypt, it's going to be the end of you. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be destroyed. Great judgment is coming upon you. And so Isaiah used it of Babylon. Ezekiel used it of Egypt. Let's look at another one. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. Joel 2, verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Jump down to verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens on earth, and blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You might recognize that the Apostle Peter quotes that second section there as he preaches in Acts chapter 2. Who was the object of God's wrath when Joel spoke? It was not the end of the world, but actually to Judah and to Jerusalem. You go to verse 32, and he'll go on to talk about Judah and Jerusalem and its desolation. And so Joel, not speaking to the end of the world, but he is speaking to a nation. He's speaking to the nation of Judah and telling them that their judgment's going to come. Let's jump back to Isaiah 34. And I'll show you one other because this has some of the other language that we had missing. This one has the sky being rolled up like a scroll. Sometimes that's the key that people put their finger on is, yeah, well, the the sun, moon, and stars falling and turning to darkness, that's a lot. But what about it saying the sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll? That sounds like an end, right? Isaiah 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. Notice, even within our quotation, it tells us who he's talking about. It sounds like the end of the world. The sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll. And we have the stars again falling from the sky. But who's he talking about? Edom. Yet another nation is going to fall. And Isaiah uses the exact same language. And so what I'm wanting you to observe is this is very consistent language. Just because you say sun darkened, sky rolled up like a scroll, stars falling, that doesn't tell you anything except somebody's being judged around here. And we have to read who. Well, who is it? Who is the object of God's wrath? Who is God now executing His wrath against? Here it is with Edom. But I want you to observe something. And this is really important to our text in Revelation 6. Notice in the text, even though that he is talking about Edom specifically and says, I am executing my wrath against them. It descends on judgment against them upon the people I have devoted for destruction there in verse 5. Back up to verse 2 and notice how he is using the world and the nations in this process. Verse 2, For the Lord is enraged against whom? Not Edom. All the nations. 
and furious against all of their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. Look at verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it. What is God doing? Why is He talking about all the nations? Why is He talking about the earth? Why is He talking about all the kings? What is the point? I think the point is fairly straightforward like this. God is saying, I'm angry with all the nations. All of the earth is deserving of judgment. And so He says in verse 1 and 2, Pay attention, nations, because I am going to execute My wrath on Edom. They deserve it. And I want you to watch Me do this because you deserve it too. I'm going to penalize and judge and bring wrath on Edom and that should cause you to open your eyes and see that you deserve the same thing. It was to cause them to look and say, because God showed His wrath for their sins, everybody who survives it should go, oh, we need to repent. We need to seek after God or He's going to do that to us because verse 2 told us He's enraged at all the nations. He's enraged at all of us. We shouldn't look at this and go, oh, it's going to be okay for us because He only took Edom out. No, no, no. That's supposed to be an object lesson to the world. That when this wrath is exposed upon this one nation, Edom, all the other nations will hopefully learn the lesson and repent. That fits what's going on here in Revelation. Jump back now to the sixth seal. Come back to Revelation. And notice you see the exact same thing happening. Because it is verse 15 that I think causes a lot of people problems in trying to interpret what's going on in Revelation 6. Who are we talking about? Well, it says there in verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everybody. So this must be the end of the world. That we're talking about the destruction of the earth. Every single person. No, 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 no. You're missing it. Whoever God is executing this wrath against, whoever is the object of God's wrath, everybody else is supposed to take the lesson away from it. And the kings of the earth are to learn. And when they see God pour out this wrath, it causes everybody else to run in fear and hide because that's also deserved of them for their wickedness. It's not saying, well, here's God destroying the, all the earth and it's all over for them. No, no. We have yet to have been told exactly who is the object of God's wrath. I think we've had a lot of clues. If you've been in the Wednesday night class, I've been much more explicit about it. I'm intentionally being more veiled about it in the Sunday, in the Sunday night lessons. But we're coming along there that chapter 10 and 11 is going to be pretty clear that we're not going to be able to mistake who we're talking about. And as we go through, this kind of language should not shake us. This kind of language should not make us go, wait a minute, it can't be talking about this nation because he just said all the kings of the earth. No, no, don't don't let that throw you. The point is that everybody is supposed to cower in fear of the wrath of God. That they will see this unfold and it will go, whoa, if he did it to them, he'll most certainly do it to us. And so everybody is to fear. And this is the idea that why he uses this language. It's somewhat of a hyperbole to get the point 
that everybody needs to fear and everybody needs to beware of God's wrath and everybody needs to come to repentance. It's not just simply the poor, it's also the rich. It's also the great. It's even the kings. It's even the powerful. Nobody should be exempted from this. Everybody's supposed to learn the lesson. Everyone, even slave or free, everybody's supposed to pay attention to these things. And that's, I believe, the picture of verses 15 and 16 is, wow, we are standing in fear such that we will go and we will call upon the mountains and the rocks and the hills to fall on us and cover us. Notice it doesn't necessarily say that they're trying to go and die. It's more a picture of they are in total fear. See there in verse 16? Hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne. Hide us from whom? The wrath of the Lamb. God is executing judgments and vengeance in His righteousness and faithfulness. And that's causing all the earth to go, wow, watch out. We need to learn from that. And we need to stand in fear and hide and tremble when we see God act like this. And so that is the picture that I think is being laid out for us in this seal. Is to come to the conclusion that is stated there explicitly in verse 17. Who can stand? When God executes His wrath? The answer is nobody. Not kings. Not the rich. Not the powerful. Nobody. Everybody runs in fear and needs to hide from the wrath of the Lamb and the execution of God's wrath upon the world. And so that's why Isaiah is so useful to go connect back up with that is to recognize that's how God operates. When He brings a judgment against a nation, the intention is to get everybody else to learn the lesson. Do you think that we read back there in the book of Exodus when God brought the plagues against Egypt that wasn't supposed to be a life lesson to all the other nations around? Don't mess with God. God will be victorious. Do not mess with His people. He will be victorious. And that was supposed to be a lesson that would be learned. And the same thing was done all throughout the history in the Old Testament. What the prophets were speaking about is the nations must learn and observe that God judges. And one of the great lessons of the Old Testament was if God will judge His own nation, His own people, the Jews, as He did in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem falls, what does that mean to all the nations and the Gentiles? He will most certainly judge them. If He will judge His chosen nation and chosen people, He will most certainly judge the nations that are not. And I think that lesson is probably sitting right here as well as the point that is being made for us. This picture is also found in the Old Testament in a number of places. This calling to the mountains and calling for the rocks to fall on us. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes in the ground before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. When He rises to terrify the earth, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, to the, to the moles, to the bats, and enter into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before, before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. When he rises to terrify the earth. I want to highlight for you, he speaks of this terrifying of the earth. However, read the first two chapters of Isaiah. Who is Isaiah prophesying against? Judah and Jerusalem. 
They are the ones that are sinners. However, their judgment is supposed to do what? Terrify the earth. It's supposed to cause them to go, whoa, we need to repent. And that's what's being pictured. That when this happens, when judgment against Jerusalem and Judah comes, what is the earth supposed to do? Cast away their idols that they've made. They're supposed to throw all that away. They're supposed to be seeking after the Lord. And that's why they're running to the hills. That's why they're calling for the mountains to fall on them. Is a recognition that God in His wrath nobody can stand. And so Isaiah prophesies that. Hosea prophesies that. Hosea 10, verse 7. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills. Fall on us. Same picture. Watch out for the wrath of God. It is calling upon people to repent as they observe a destruction to take place here against Samaria. One other interesting location where this happens. Did you know and remember that Jesus said the very same thing? As Jesus is going away to His crucifixion, the story that Luke gives us follows suit. Luke 23, verse 26. And speaking of Jesus, And as they led Him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and he laid and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Can you imagine the scene as Jesus is going to the cross and the people are wailing and crying out, knowing the doom that's upon him? Jesus' response in verse 28. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What Jesus says is, don't wail for me. It's going to be bad for you, Jerusalem. The problem is going to be for you. And he then explains a little bit further. If this is what happens in the good times when the tree is green, imagine what happens when things get bad. It's going to be awful. And so he uses the exact same picture of Mountains and hills falling on them as the wrath of God is being vented out. And Jesus is predicting here the fall of Jerusalem and the difficulties that will come as that uh, judgment against that nation takes place. That's the sixth seal. I want to just draw two conclusions for you tonight, and this lesson will be yours. One of the things that I... I took away, and I hope you take away as well, when you read about this picture of doom and devastation, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, stars falling from the sky, a picture of national judgment is coming. Here is God saying it is deserved of them for what they've done. I think we should take a step back from the book of Revelation and realize this kind of doom that we are reading about is deserved of every single person and every single nation today. We should step back and read these words and go, 
none of us are righteous either. And every nation should also crumble before the wrath of God because as people individually, as well as nations as a whole, we do not find people seeking God. We do not find nations that are serving God. We do not find peoples that are following after God. And a reminder that this is deserved. This imagery is as awful and distressing and as tragic as it sounds is deserved of the people that God is talking about. When Isaiah prophesied it against Babylon, it was deserved. It was their time. When Ezekiel prophesied it of Egypt, it was their due. It was right and just. It was their time. When Joel spoke of it to Jerusalem and Judah, it was right. It was due. It was proper judgment for them. This is certainly a proper judgment for us and a reminder that none of us can stand before the throne of God. No one can stand before Him. And I think that imagery should call call us to mind every time. Verse 16, who's going to stand before the face of Him who's seated on the throne? We saw all that in chapters 4 and 5, this beautiful imagery in the throne room. And we need to have the recognition none can stand before the face of God, even... Even the Lord Himself told Moses that. You're not standing before the face of God. Absolutely not. You cannot handle that. None can stand before God. And we are in the same situation of needing to hide ourselves from the wrath of God. The second point, though, brings back in verse 11, though. In the picture of all that wrath, in the picture of all of that doom and judgment that is right and deserved and it should happen upon every person, people's nation. In verse 11, we read about the grace of God to those who had given their lives to Jesus. Here you read about the true people of God. And here, where are they pictured? They are not pictured where they should be. They should be in eternal punishment. That's what all of us deserve. That's not where they're at. They're pictured in the throne room of God. They're pictured there before God as God is hearing the calls, the prayers of His people and saying, alright, just a little longer and I'll bring justice. Just a little longer and I will bring about what needs to be done. It is a great reminder and why I have said this is the visualization of Revelation 2 and 3. It is a great reminder of look at what we have before God. I hope you will take this imagery because of one of the points we made this morning. We talked about what a great picture it is ascribed to say to those who overcome what was given to them, white robes. And said, you are worthy. See that picture right here. Here they are with white robes. They have loved the Lord. They have devoted themselves to God even to the death. And they are pictured as victorious even though they've lost their physical lives. They are shown with God. They are shown to be with Him. And that is the most important thing. 
And that's the picture that this sixth seal then draws out. As the wrath of God unfolds and judgment is given as it is due for every single one, those who are with Christ are pictured avoiding the final doom that is deserved. Pour your song books out and we'll sing the invitation song. We invite you to see the invitation that God has presented. All of us fall short. All of us have sinned. All of us are deserving of God's wrath and of His judgment. The pictures that we have seen are certainly deserved of us. But when we make the decision to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, to serve Him fully, the picture completely reverses. And instead of receiving what is deserved of us of eternal punishment, instead we receive eternal life and we are reconciled to God and pictured reigning with Him. I look forward to pressing into chapter 7 with you, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks because we get to press pause to the judgment and get to see tremendous victory for the people of God Those who are serving Him, look at the things they get. And we'll get to study that over the next couple weeks. We invite you to become part of the people of God. Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. In that, you can have a relationship with Him and know that you have eternal life. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?